Well, hello there. It is great to see you again, and welcome back to Wisdom and Wealth, Pathways to a Life of Significance for You and Your Family. I'm your moderator, Ryan Ruff. It's good to be back with everyone today, and as always, I'll be joined by really the star of our show in Mr. Frank Astorino of the Astorino Financial Group. And we're going to be diving into, yes, another wealth management-related topic, as we typically do on the show. And we're also going to be joined by a really unique and fun guest for today, uh, and that's Mr. David Astorino. Yes, you might recognize that last name. David being Frank's brother, but we decided to bring David on for a variety of different reasons. David is a senior partner and a member of RHR International's uh, operating committee. So David has been working with CEOs and board of directors for more than 20 years to help them you know, drive the human side of really transformation uh, and change within a given organization, to help those CEOs grow their organization, to build it up to you know, a behemoth in their industry, and then to talk about what comes next for those CEOs and life beyond the business as a whole. And doesn't that sound a little familiar to what some of the conversations we We've had on this show, obviously, Frank, working with CEOs, business owners surrounding the wealth management side of their financial world beyond the business as a whole. So today we thought we would marry the two concepts and dive into really the, the true full picture of what a CEO or a board of director is dealing with in today's day and age. But first, before we get into the nitty and gritty of everything today, let's go ahead and say hi to the man of the hour. Frank, it is good to see you this morning. How are you doing, sir? Ryan, thank you for that wonderful introduction. And I really look forward to uh, bringing my brother, David. He's the youngest of eight of us, and uh, he comes with an excellent background. It's not because he's my brother and I love seeing him and working with him, uh, but his uh, mind has developed to guide people, not only for that life of significance, but to really um, broaden that human element that we talk about so much. And the reason we chose um, David and his background with CEOs is because today, more than anything, one of the, the silver linings that we come up with uh, through our client base is concern about leadership, not only globally, but right in our own businesses and right here at home. And we're dealing with a very complex world right now. And David is very apt and well-studied. And I just think he's a breath of fresh air. And I'm glad that he's joining us today. Sure, sure. So with that, let's go ahead and bring David onto the show. David, it's great to see you this morning. How are you doing? Good, Ryan. Hi, Frank. It's, so, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. Uh, so, hey, we've got a, a jam-packed episode today, a lot to get into in the world of a CEO or a member of a you know board of directors. Um, let's let's go ahead and get into your world, David, for a second. Um, I know this is a big question that you and, and Frank have talked about off-camera as well as on uh, with regard to the world of the CEO, and I think a good place to get us started is what is an issue that tends – or what issues – let's talk plural <laughs> – what issues really tend to keep CEOs awake at night? Let's start there, and then and we'll, we'll get deeper into their worlds. It's a good question. And, um, you know, I've had the privilege of sitting side by side. I'm probably on, on my upper 80s, 90s of CEOs I've worked with in, in different industries and different size companies. And so I've seen a lot. And I'd say what's, what's very interesting to me after 20 plus years of doing this is the last three years have really profoundly changed the role of CEO. And it, it was, we can mark it sort of with the pandemic. Um, and since then, it was the convergence of that and many issues that um, I think have changed the game of CEO leadership. And so when we say what keeps them up at night, um, it's really, how do I do two things? How do I run my business 
and all that it takes to do that, to be competitive, to win. Um, how do I do that? And now how do I also show up as the leader I need to show up on all of these other issues? So let's just take, what are those other issues? You know, you have, we, we did have a, a global pandemic, you know, which um, caused a lot of employees to feel a bit lost, bewildered. How do we deal with this? And CEOs had to fill a void of creating clarity and safety for their employees. And if you think about sort of what was coming out of sort of our po political figures and the scientific community, while they were doing their very best, it was, it, it was confusing at many times. And so CEOs suddenly found themselves in this very social place where around a societal issue, they had to lead differently. At that time, we had other social issues happen. We had uh, Me Too was just prior to the pandemic. Black Lives Matter in the United States um, also started to create this revisiting and a cascading of very difficult issues that suddenly CEOs had to dig deep into. And those are just a couple. We have AI coming on now, which is technology has always been very disruptive in, a, in both a positive way and a challenging way. But each of these topics, and there are more, there are, there's a, you know, a, a, there's a war in, in Europe and Ukraine and Russia going on, there's geopolitical tensions, there's supply chain issues, you can go on and on. But a lot of these require CEOs to take a very quick deep dive. What is the issue? How do I deal with this? Do I have to say anything or do anything about it? And the, the interesting part to me is after, again, doing this for quite a while, we used to spend 80 to 85% of our time on running the business, strategy, execution, innovation, my employees, my customers, my consumer, and how do I you know, win in the ways we talk about winning in business. Now I'd say we spend 40% of our time on these other topics. And I think that's right. I think it's a, it's a new moment really for business leadership and society. And we can talk more about why that is, but it's, it's an exciting time. It's a daunting time. It's not for everyone, um, but I think those are just few of the issues that really do keep them up at night. Sure. And, and Frank, from the wealth management perspective, what do you see on this front of, of some of the issues that might keep a CEO up at night, maybe from outside of their business even? Yeah, on a microcosm level, because I'm dealing with smaller business and high net worth individuals and some CEOs, and <clears throat> they're all worried about these issues. So it takes up, it's topical. Um, and they want, they're concerned about the future. They're concerned about the next generation. So while we're spending a lot of time behind the scenes on the nuts and bolts of their financial uh, concerns, a lot of the discussion centers around, you know, what do you think about the future and what do you think about what's going on globally, economically and, and socially? So when I talk to David, it just validates and, and reinforces what I'm seeing on a micro level that he's seeing at a very high level. Sure, sure, gentlemen. And guys, I want to kind of combine our, our next two questions because they both encompass this conversation around time. Time is obviously so valuable in today's day and age with technology allowing us to be able to do so much more in such a little amount of time. So my first question, I'll kind of combine, like I said, the two, but first is, is given that multitude of complex issues that David was just chatting through, 
A, how does a CEO manage those complex issues, the multitude that is, on a daily basis? And we're talking about issues that David mentioned that could be globally. They could be economic issues, financially driven issues, employee-related issues. How do they manage this multitude of issues? And then the second question kind of being, given all those complexities, how do they maintain a work-life balance? Because it's very easy for a CEO to be bogged down in the weeds of their business and, and kind of put their life and their family and their relationships by the way side. So I'll throw that question over to you, David, kind of into two parts. How do they manage the, the multitude of complexities, but then also still try and uphold a work-life balance throughout the process? It's a great question. You know, CEOs today, um, and we think about managing complexity, understanding complexity, first and foremost, they tend to be people who can process information quickly and see patterns quickly. So they're often well-equipped to deal with a lot of complexity. Now, the human brain is, is still very limited in its ability to do this. And uh, we can talk about AI and helping that helping us, but they're, they're pretty good at sorting through what's more important or less important. But I would say what we focus on, what I focus on with them are a few things. Number one is, is we, we, we get very clear on their purpose. And, and I always start with purpose because purpose is a great filter and it's purpose for them as a human being why are you here on this planet? And it's also, what is your leadership purpose um, that you need to drive in your company? And, it, and that gets into values and my values and my company values do have to be aligned as a CEO. And that's the, the filter from which now I can manage my time and make sure my time is going to the things that are most important to me and in, in my role, as well as in my life. And the second big thing we talk a lot about is managing and generating energy for them. And we mean physical energy, emotional energy, and mental energy. And, and that gets us into the topic of health and how they manage their health because they have to show up. You know, we, we like to say, um, if you think about the CEO role as a performance sport almost, and let's, let's use athletes as, a, as an interesting example, professional athletes have to perform in that performance zone about 30% of their time. The other 70% of their time, they are recovering because that's how much it takes from them. In the CEO world, they are performing 90% of the time because every interaction they have, whether that's with an external stakeholder, with an employee, um, or with multiple other stakeholders, they have to show up being very engaged, being very intellectually sharp, Anything they say can be misinterpreted or interpreted. So the weight of their role and then the weight of their words and how they show up in, in, in each of these situations is very important. So that puts a big burden on them to manage their energy exquisitely. And so, so that helps a lot. The last thing I will say is that, uh, and, and again, in the, the pace of change and complexity, as that increases in, in the world today, and it is increasing, there's no doubt, even though every generation wants to say it, it's, it's getting faster. That's mostly driven by technological improvements, um, that that is happening faster and faster. They have to have exceptional talent under them. Because if and this is never a perfect algorithm, but if you have to drop down and do the work of those below you in that hierarchy in a, in a, in a medium-sized, a large company or any size company, you are now taking time away from the things that only you can do. And you have to spend your time as a CEO in that strategy space, in the 
board and investor space, in the culture of your company space, and of course, in the consumer, customer, client space. Uh, and so you don't have a lot of free time. And so getting that talent and team right under you and being capable to take away any of those things that you shouldn't be doing is really quite critical. And, and Frank, in your eyes, when, when somebody, uh, you know, as a, as a CEO and you're having these conversations, maybe surrounding, let's say even exit planning, you know, what life looks like beyond versus in, I would imagine this is when maybe a CEO's had their heads in the weeds of the business for so long now, you know, sees the light almost and says, Oh man, you're right. There is this world beyond. I need to th think about the life beyond that work-life balance. Talk to me about your side of this, this, uh, proverbial coin, if you will. Yeah, I think uh, one of the parallels that my brother David and I have is um, being one of eight children, we had to learn how to deal with complexity at an early age. And I think that carried on into our, our careers because um, our business is very complex. And I find that energy and finding that time and, and leveraging my skill among team members is, is a daunting task. Um, in our world, you know, we've become a default CEO in addition to trying to maintain a high level of excellence as an elite advisor. So we've had to uh, deal with behavior. You know, many people have different biases and anchors where, you know, some people come very cocksure, uh, you know, know-it-all, and some people come in just lost and want to know, you know, tell me where to go. So we have to be able to adjust to many different behavior types like we did with siblings. You know, it's um, not everybody has the same script for how to communicate with them. And I agree with David about the talent. Um, you know, we're focusing on now that 10X is, is easier than 2X, which is basically, you know, I have to think big picture. I have to bring the firm to the next level uh, of, of success to keep a pace with um, the competition and also to sustain all of the business that we have. And in order to do that, you have to trickle down to the talent and, and leverage them because I can't be doing a $50 an hour task when I need to be doing a $2,000 an hour task. So, so those are some parallels that um, David and I have. The other similarity would be the purpose. Um, we do a very extensive discovery process as one of five stages of our engagement. And that's the that's where we get um, individuals in touch with their values, like David, uh, and as well as their goals, but also their relationships. You know, so many people, you know, look back after making millions or billions of dollars and say, "I wish I had done that," or "I wish I had spent more time with my family," or those some of those interests that that are also part of our discovery is what really drives you, what what turns you on. Um, so, and I think technology is a, is a mixed blessing for me, at least, um, you know, I have some of the best minds in technology come in and some of them are clients and, uh, I always feel humbled, you know, because I have millennials and Gen Z's that can, can turn on a switch faster than I can, but the technology enables me to leverage. So just by having this conversation, we're starting to see appointments that are are video conferencing as opposed to coming into the real estate and, and coming and touching and kicking the brick we're doing a lot of uh, communication via technology so mm -hmm. i think we're pretty close with uh, i see a lot of parallels and when david talks about what he does um it, it's very reassuring to me because sometimes in one sentence 
he could have an aha moment for me just by, mm -hmm. by talking to him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and it's interesting you mentioned the millennial side of things because I want to uh, scratch a curious itch, if you will, for myself. David, in your experiences, uh, could you comment a little for us on this, this, the expectation, shall we say, of the younger generation of CEOs moving in versus maybe the older generation and maybe the difference in management styles? Is there any... Uh, well, I'm sure there's a difference, but what, what could you share with us in regard to this? Because I think we are at an interesting time where there's a bit of a, a passing of the guard, if you will. T tell me about your thoughts on this and, and how it factors into the work that you do. It's a, it's a really interesting question, Ryan. You know, the, um, we have, I think, four or approaching five generations in the workforce. Millennials and Gen Z are taking up about 55%, and that's moving up in, in a company's employee population. So, so more than half. And when you think about what were the significant defining moments of each generation, they're incredibly different, you know, from world, the World War II generation to baby boomers to Gen Z, Gen X, and, and now, you know, millennials. And each one is defined by a different set of factors. And so for a CEO, how to communicate to these different employee bases, as well as on the consumer and client and customer side, how do I understand these different groups? how they like to be communicated to and and then sort of what do they want out of work and so we see the biggest differences in gen z and millennials is what they're motivated by work is not the center of their universe almost every prior generation was willing to make incredible sacrifices uh, not always wise choices when it came to important you know people like family members and communities and they you know they worked and it was part of just the, the default mode we came into. You had to work uh, and spend most of your time at work. Different generations have different values around that. And, and we see, you know, these terms that get floated around like quiet quitting or, um, you know, having side hustles. Uh, and that's way more common, particularly in a world that is virtual where you don't have to come in. And I, don't, and I personally don't believe in the research is starting to show we're never going back to what was, meaning everyone comes to some location. So virtual work will always be some form of that will be here with us. Um, and as technology gets better, it will also become better. But I can't see you, I can't watch you. And now, you know, I know that I've got to do so much to appeal to you. Um, so it's a, it's a real challenge. I think um, the way I see uh, many of our clients and CEOs working very hard which is redefining the purpose of their organizations. So if I'm a, an organization that has a compelling purpose, we're doing something that's important to that generation, then they're way more willing to put in maximum effort and extra effort. If it's not compelling, um, then it becomes much harder to keep, keep them engaged. And, uh, and we know about 60% of an employee population is actively engaged, meaning they're, they don't want to be there and looking for something else or moderately disengaged. And so, it's a real, it's a real challenge and has been for a while, but it's only getting, I think more so. Yeah, I, I would agree. And, and Frank, from your lens, do you see uh, a, maybe a difference in when you're having those values driven conversations, the purpose driven conversations about yes, their world as a CEO, but what life looks like outside of it. Do you find that there's a difference in the schools of thought and how they approach this? They're very similar. The way I would frame it is in, in the behavioral finance world, um, we term it as uh, immigrants of wealth and natives of wealth. So what, what does that mean? Um, we have, you know, like a business owner that started with a grocery cart 
and then built a major food chain, you know, across the country. And they didn't get there by just showing up and having it already laid out for them. Uh, the other analogy I use for some people that get a kick out of is, is that some, some of the generation kind of has not at their own fault, but they, they're like, they're born on third base and they think they hit a triple. So they're starting out with an advantage, but it's almost like an expected advantage. You know, they had all their needs met in the affluent side of, of, of households. And now all of a sudden, you know, to be asked to run a company or take over a company, um, it takes a different set of bootstraps, you know, to, to adopt to that. Um, and I find that that's a, that's a big challenge for the team aspect that David's talking about, because there are linear people who want to come in and be directed and tell, you know, they want to be told what to do and they want to check off their boxes. And then there's incentive based, um, individuals where, you know, they want to aspire to higher, uh, achievements. And the only way to get there is not only working harder, but working smarter. So technology helps them with that. But you can't teach ambition. You can't teach, you know, a work ethic that gets you up in the morning and and has you thinking about how can I do this better. You know, Frank, to your point too, I was thinking of these different generations and what motivates them. And I do think there's something around ambition. Um, a term called grit has become more popular too. At the same time, I feel like um, certainly the Gen Z generation and some of the millennial generation has grown up in such a different world than we did. And mostly it's about um, what comes at them from a social media and information standpoint. Mm -hmm. so they, they really are bombarded by so much and, and some of it's, you know, not great um, for their mental health. And so some of those issues are also feel profound. Like when you think about um, what comes at them from a, what's going on with our climate or what's going on with the opportunities in our economy. Um, and so, there is something about how do you, as a, as a CEO or as a leader today, how do you fill some of that information that they're getting so that it's more based in uh, reality and that it's also, there's an optimistic aspect to it that we can solve some of these problems. So, so I do think um, there's more going on than meets the eye around it. And a lot of it is just the, the nature of the information that comes into different generations' heads through platforms like social media and they're very powerful. And so we have to, you know, as a leader, you have to combat that. Sure. Absolutely. So, well, guys, given these great points surrounding kind of the, the younger generation versus the, you know, more old school way of management, the varying generations that we have within the workforce as a whole these days. So David, for those CEOs that are navigating, not only the complex challenges that the business is up against regularly, but those interpersonal challenges of these differing generations, do you have any advice for those CEOs out there that you work with for, you know, fostering alignment from within their teams to, you know, increase productivity, increase the culture, increase maybe competition from within the workplace, anything of this sorts? Yeah, no, it's, great. it's, it's, it's a really interesting question. We definitely do have some recommendations. You know, the first is to become way more expert at listening than you ever have before and get a continual diet of input from those different groups and so they may be generational groups in this case and as a, as a ceo literally having lunch and learn sessions five to ten employees from usually different parts of the organization but certainly different generations get them together and just listen and ask questions about their experiences 
So that's, that's sort of number one. Number two is companies have to get better at the things they typically do to kind of get input about where their employees are. Typically they do things that we call engagement surveys and, and those are, you know, people fill out surveys. They're getting more sophisticated at trying to understand where is my employee base? What is their sentiment? How are they feeling? And are, are, are there ways that we can sort of understand that without just surveying them directly? Um, and then an interesting thing that we're seeing happen even on, and this is mostly happening more in Europe than in the US, but I love this idea of uh, either formally putting um, different generations on your board and really taking a risk and putting a 20 something year old uh, on your board is a fascinating thing to do or create your own sort of board of uh, advisors as a CEO, that's not a formal board, but populate it with certainly folks of different generations. Some of it is really just immersing yourself in how how are they thinking, how what's going on with them emotionally, because it is a, a truly different experience for them than it was for us. And and uh, on your side of the coin, there, Frank, when you're talking about the wealth management perspective from these CEOs, you know, is there, you know, just in conversations with with clients of yours that are maybe in the throes of navigating some of these challenges, do you hear anything uh, with regard to maybe? the wealth management perspective on that alignment of, you know, team of culture of productivity, even uh, from maybe outside the business, even. Yeah, I, I would, I would build off of what David said about um, listening skills, which parlays into communication skills. So I find myself doing a lot of reframing. Um, you know, when I hear someone venting or, or expressing, you know, what challenges they're having, whether it's a generational issue or, or something about their own personal energy and so forth. Um, I try to reframe the situation and, and then tying that in with our own teams. Um, I find everyone is a unique individual in, in respecting their uniqueness. Um, I, I, I communicate with each one differently. Some people need very straightforward directives and other people need you to kind of just ask the right questions. And I find a lot of the younger generation need at least uh, four positives to one criticism. So you, you have to kind of uh, frame it and package it so that you're not shutting them down. Because when, they, when they're so used to social media, how many likes they got, they're used to stroking. So I have to try to make sure that I'm doing my share of stroking. You know, it's funny, Frank, you know, I, I, I think it's... Uh... It's fun to, uh, it has been fun to watch you dive deeper into the behavioral science. I know you did your master's in behavioral economics. A, a top, your thesis was on that topic of behavioral economics and, and cognitive biases. And, and what you're saying is so important. And for a lot of our CEO clients, they have to get off of themselves. And, and, and you, it's easier for some industries, like when we talk about products, uh, product services, consumer products, they got they have to get off themselves to think about consumer and what does that consumer want? And that translates nicely into leadership. Get off yourself and think about your employee, for example. But that skill is very hard, you know, and you just sort of described how you do it. Um, but it does take uh, a certain level of work on yourself to be able to say, look, I'm going to put myself aside and my biases aside and really open myself up to understanding others. It sounds simple, but it, it, it's amazing to me to this day, sort of how uh, less common it is than you would think that even very senior executives and leaders can do that. Um, it's a really important skill. 
No, absolutely agreed. Uh, and gentlemen, I want to kind of shift the conversation now, maybe not necessarily off of CEOs, but more more general questions, if you will, surrounding you know the the thought processes, uh, the you know, wealth management side of things as a whole into somebody's financial world. Uh, kind of to bat lead off in this section, I throw this out to you, Frank, maybe to, to kind of open it up, and I'd love to get David's color on this as well. How, Frank, in your dealings with clients or customers out there, uh, how do you have conversations? around this idea of, hey, look, control what you can control and leave what you can't. Because it's so easy for people, you know, CEOs, you know, your Joe Schmoes, anybody out there to get bogged down in the weeds of things that they can't control. And they're wasting time, they're wasting energy, they're wasting, you know, emotion on these things. What do you have to say to these types of folks when you're going through these these uh, these conversations? Yeah, that's a good one. So, um, well, first of all, there's a lot of couples I would say 75% of the couples have one control person and I try to encourage that to change because it's more optimal to have both people weigh in on what they think. So that's just from a couple, you know, observation. Um, the other is that we have the toolbox that has to align with the behavioral side of, of people. And, and the toolbox has the ability to, deal with the things we can control. So from an investment standpoint, we can control the allocation and the volatility and the cash flow of your investments. We can't control world events and, and epidemics and, and wars and, and things of that nature. Um, so we try to let people understand that there's a fundamental plan that we review. We have a financial plan. It ties in with all, all their other wealth management concerns. But at, we also have a B plan. You know, what, what do we do? What if? You know, what if we have three years of uh, depressed markets and, and economy? How are you going to withstand that? And on an extreme level, we'll tell people, um, what, would, what would you be able to live without or not live without. So in other words, if we cut your assets 50% and your income 50%, what would you not want to give up? And that kind of ties in with that discovery process of what's really important to them because they get so busy running their business and becoming their business that they lose sight of what's really important to them. And we don't want them to wait till they're on their deathbed, you know, to figure it out. So, so that's, that's um, what you can control is part of our discussion and what we can't control might be an explanation for why your results are the way they are we can't control all the events and hence your portfolio is going to reflect a economic environment as well as a political environment but we also have the scientific and the fundamental side of it that does work over time Sure. And David, earlier you mentioned the idea of, of when a CEO has to pivot sometimes and work uh, work in the business rather than on the business as a whole. Uh, I would imagine some of those moments are because they feel like they need to control something that maybe they shouldn't. And so talk to me about your your uh, perspective from this lens through a CEO of this idea of controlling what is controllable and, and figuring out how to address what is not controllable, at least yeah. in their own respect. You know, control, it's a... It's a the need for control is certainly a personality variable. That's how we would describe that. Meaning almost genetically and by environmental issues, people either want more control or they're more comfortable with less control. And so 
that sort of is something to think about that we come into this with a predisposition. Um, where we find it in, um, and, and I guess for Frank too, as I think about your world, um, you want clients who actually value a co-pilot or an expert in the area of clear here of financial wealth and financial uh, health and management, similar to how people would like a good doctor. And, and I defer to my doctor because they're an expert. But if, if I actually want to be my own doctor or be my own financial advisor, that's probably not a good client to have <laughs> So because they just need to do their thing. Um, in the C in the CEO world, we Ryan, it's a little it's a little different, a little interesting to us in that we find that sometimes it's because I don't have the right team and I have to go down and do that. Sometimes it's because I'm more comfortable operating at a lower level because I have more control. The space of ambiguity, which is really the CEO role, there's so much more ambiguity in the role itself that it's uncomfortable for a lot of people. And it's one of the reasons why they might fail in that role is that they are too, they want too much control. I remember I had a very good client who was CEO of a very, very large company, and he was more of a philosopher than anything. Um, but he would also, I mean, and even Warren Buffett, you can say, has uh, stopped the quarterly projection thing for a lot of their portfolio companies because that's a linear way of viewing the world. The world doesn't work that way. The world is filled with ambiguity. And our best CEO clients play the game where they know they have to perform, obviously, and adjust to performing for, in a quarterly way. They also really appreciate that they control very little. And, and so, you know, that's a comfort level that I think people just who want those kinds of roles have to get to. No, completely understandable. And, and guys, I I don't want to open up a can of worms with the next question, but I think there's a lot to unpack here. And Frank and I have had conversations on the show a, a lot surrounding the idea of value, right? I mean, at the end of the day, that's what we want to even be doing right here on the show is providing value to our audience. Value is is uh, is almost an unmeasurable thing, but you know it when you feel it and when you see it. Uh, whereas maybe let's say performance or fees even, uh, now those are calculable. Uh Let's talk about this idea of fees versus value. Frank, I'll let you bat lead off on this one. What's your take on a fee versus the value that's provided by that fee and, and this idea of, of tracking things that might not be might be unmeasurable versus tracking some things that are in fact calculable? That's that's a thesis question. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so there, there's a saying that in our industry that uh, absence value cost matters. And the, the challenge with that statement is it's very difficult to define and prove value. <clears throat> and in many cases, you know, I'd say 85% of our clients or more um, get the value and they don't really argue or pursue anything about the cost. But when you're bombarded in an industry that is going after assets as a, as a measure of success, um, you know, they'll, they'll attack anything including fees or costs. So in our industry, we've had to have tiers of service um, and that, that correlate to a, um, a fee structure. And a lot of people, you know, kind of try to oversimplify the investment world per se, and even though we're more than investments, they try to diminish it to, you know, well, my no load, I won't mention names, but my no load fund has been doing really well. You know, that's relative. What's doing well? 
Do they know your context of your needs and aspirations? Do they have the uh, time frame that you need to accomplish? Do they have your risk tolerance? There's, there's so many variables that go into constructing a portfolio for someone or a risk management program and where are they exposed. And as David, you know, you know, attests, the behavior side is the most complex. So to match up, you know, your values, your goals, your relationships with portfolio management and risk management uh, is a very, very challenging thing. So it's very, um, some of it's intuitive. I, I summarize it as uh, there's an intrinsic principle and then there's a cognitive factor. And the cognitive factor looks at the report card. They say, okay, how did I do? How did the benchmarks do? How did I do against my financial plan? That's all cognitive. Emotionally, they need to know that they're connected to you and that you get them and that you're not talking through them and that you are trustworthy. It's not something that is measurable. It's something that is is in the gut. So those two principles, I think, um, make for a good alignment. And it goes back to why you can't serve everyone. So people who recognize there's a cost for a value and are willing to pay for it because they get it that they can't do this by themselves. As, as David said, he's not going to be his own doctor. Um, those people make for you know a good partnership or co-pilot, as David said, in the journey of financial management, which is extremely complex. Sure. And, and as we kind of wrap up our conversation here, David, I'd love to get your take on this idea of, of fees versus value and, and how you're relaying this type of conversation and connotation to the CEOs that you work with. What do you see on this front? No, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting um, question. You know, some, some of my clients, uh, and we, we charge a lot of money <laughs> to say, and, uh, and it seems sometimes, you know, you know, like, Wow, how, how do they do that? But for them, it's a blip on the radar in many ways. If I help them make a better decision, 50% of the time. So 50% of our conversations lead to a better decision that could have multiple million dollars of implications, then my fee is, is negligible. So it goes back to, I think, what Frank is saying. What, what does a person value and what is the value they perceive from you? Um, and, you know, if if... I would imagine in, in Frank's business, if someone wants to be their own boss in that way of all of the complexities of where a financial um, household financial plan can be almost like God bless them, you know, because that seems just like a real effort. And then there's going to be others who are going to really want to find those trusted advisors who help them think through complex things, but also, you know, has has their back, has the scorecard. It's not like that doesn't matter. Um, but there's so many intangibles that come from the relationship and peace of mind. And so, so in some ways, I think it is about sorting out who your, who, your, who your clients are that really value you and what you have to bring. Fantastic. Well, gentlemen, as we're bringing our conversation to a head here, I want to leave you guys with one final question. And uh, could you just bottom line it for our audience? I know we've covered a lot today with respect to CEOs and the complexities and challenges that they face on a regular basis. But David, through all your conversations, if you find that there's always just this one, you know, core uh, similarity among a lot of uh, a lot of CEOs that you work with, what would be that core similarity? What is the bottom line that you could share with us uh, in our audience today? Yeah, I mean, I think the one thing that distinguishes the very best CEOs from others is their level of self-awareness, um, 
their understanding of their impact. And that goes to what we really started the conversation with. It's deeply connected to a purpose that is bigger than themselves. And then it's how they manage their energy, not just their time. I think those are really the, they underpin everything else. All the, all the other things of running a business and dealing with investors and boards is, is really comes secondary to that. Um, but those are really the fundamental things I think that distinguish the very best. I think David, uh, that, that kind of segues into what I would say about CEOs and, and clients that, um, need three things that we offer and deliver. Uh, one is empathy that we are, we are familiar with the complexities of life and our business, and we can relate to their complexity and having that of affirmation is a, is a positive thing. And the third thing would be, um, that we have the tools and the tools to help you navigate this journey that you may not have access to, um, is, is why bridging all those values and goals together with the toolbox is what's going to get you at least 50, 50, if not better chance of success of achieving your goals. And we actually have measurements of that and that can get you up to like a hundred percent probability. So it's going back to what you can control or not control. And, uh, we think that, you know, there's a purpose for what we do. And I think some people get it better than others. And that makes for a great partnership. Sure thing. And, and Frank, for anybody out there in our audience, I mean, I know you work as a, a trusted advisor and you have these types of conversations with clients of yours. Frank, for anybody in our audience that's interested in opening up a dialogue about themselves and their world as a CEO with you, uh, you know, or David, what would be the best way they can get in touch with, with you guys and, and just, uh, like I said, open up that conversation? Well, I, I know how to get in touch with David. Um, and I also know how to filter, you know, where the appropriateness is. So I would say people who are interested in a CEO level conversation, um, you know, to contact us either through our website or, you know, our, our telephone number or email, and I'll make the connection for you. Fantastic. Well, Frank, David, I appreciate you both for carving some time out of your busy day. I know you've got clients to serve and great other conversations to have. So we'll let you get back to doing that. But uh, looking forward to the next one with you, Frank and David, maybe we'll have to have you back on for a part two down the road. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. Thank you, Frank, for inviting me. It's my pleasure. I get to see you. So that's good. It's awesome. Fantastic, guys. Well, hey, look, folks, we want to take one final moment, as we always do, and thank you for stopping by and spending some time with us here on the podcast today. If you did take anything away from today's discussion, you did benefit from the conversation, go ahead and hit that subscribe button then on whichever platform you checked us out on. That way you never miss out on a future conversation with Frank and myself where we unpack these different wealth management conversations that, in, that really draw from all the complexities and the challenges that face somebody and their financial world. But for Frank, for David, I'm Ryan. We're going to go ahead and say so long now, but we appreciate you stopping by and being with us on Wisdom and Wealth. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA, SIPC. 
The opinions voiced in this material are for general information purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. No strategy assures success or protects against loss. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The Astorino Financial Group and LPL Financial do not provide legal or tax advice or services. Please consult your legal or tax advisor regarding your specific situation. LPL Financial Representatives offer access to trust services through the private trust company NA, an affiliate of LPL Financial.